Welcome back to The Cypher, a series of conversations with creators from the Black diaspora who are leaning into their roots to create new spaces for all of us. I'm Christabel Nsiabwadi. On today's show, Bernada Champong is one half of Unedited, an organization with just that kind of focus. Can you remember the moment that inspired you to change or create? For Bernard, co-founder of Unedited, an award-winning radio and storytelling production company, it was the reporting on the largest civil unrest in the UK for generations, which took place in 2011. And it was after the shooting death of a black British man called Mark Duggan. Seeing how the event was framed and discussed in the production studios he worked in and around his environment, Bernard and his business partner, Andrew Spence, saw the need for honest, authentic and diverse representation in storytelling, production and programming in the media industry. The team at Unedited doesn't just create content, though. They provide mentorship, too. They've worked with the BBC, TalkSport and Spotify's podcast incubator, SoundUp. Bernard, thank you so much for joining me on The Cypher. How are you? I am well, as well as you can be on a Friday evening. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> take that as you as you wish. It's either the beginning of a restful weekend, or depending on what your your what cultural you engagements are, it could be a very busy weekend. <laughs> I understand. Well, um, for the, for the sake of listeners, I may call you B if that's okay. Is that all right? That is completely fine. I love it. Okay, so you heard in the intro, um, I mentioned um, Mark Duggan's death shooting death in 2011 and I mentioned the fact that it kind of it it was the beginning of what we know now as unedited for people who are not familiar with that because we have listeners all over the world um can you give some context as to what that was and why that inspired you to start create your, your production company sure of course so for me that's one of those moments that remind you that you are closer to a cultural experience than the rest of the people around you. Um, Take George Floyd, for instance. There were people who were affected by George Floyd's death quite viscerally because they identified as a man of color going about his business, not involved in any kind of crime, but still, you know, apprehended and killed. Mark Duggan was a similar situation um, where I identified as a black man and there was a black man who was apprehended by the police and then shot. How that came into storytelling for me was at the time I was working at the BBC in one of the newsrooms. And often you're looking for your moment, right? When you're working with a a newsroom, which is broadly uh, has a Western outlook and, uh, you know, the BBC is a British institution. So you know what British is. Let's understand that. Um, Mm -hmm. So, with the insights around what was happening with the conversations on social media, um, I think it was BlackBerry Messenger at the time with <laughs> Mark Duggan, um, you know, people who were in my network had a particular narrative around it, I guess like people had about, around George Floyd, which was this is another death which has happened at the hands of police brutality. You know, the police are biased. This is civil unrest. You know, what's going on? Why has the problem not been solved? To other aspects, other, other people in the, in the broadcast community, it would have been brand new. They wouldn't have heard of names like Smiley Culture or Sherry mm. Gross or Sean Rigg. So it would have just been, oh, someone's been killed. I wonder what that's about. And I don't understand why those black kids over there are angry or so angry about someone that they didn't know. 
So that's the context that I came into the newsroom in that day, which was, I've got so much to contribute to the story. I've got a history of other people that this has happened to. And I've got people who are, I'm connected to in the community that we can talk to about it. And when I got into the newsroom, the editor's priority was more about the mainstream news telling of the story, which had, um, I guess, ignited a, a civil unrest. People are just tired and they just rebelled. Um, and the narrative in the newsroom was more about, you know, who are these young people? Why are they committing, you know, why are they rioting, which is a word that kept getting used over and over again. Why are these young people rioting when in my narrative and in my networks, there's words like uprising and, and you know, retribution and, and so on, but still not the word riot. Right. Um, so for me, there was a story, there was another story here on this event that could be told. And it wasn't being picked up by the mainstream broadcaster that I was working for at the moment. Um, and I went to meet a friend of mine after work, like most people do. And you have a bit of a whinge about the, the kind of day that you had. And I'm going on about, well, you know, someone should do something about this. Someone should tell this story because no one's doing this and there's no authentic representation. And if you ever meet my, my business partner, Andrew, he's a very straight talking Jamaican. <laughs> um, culturally, I'm Ghanaian, so I'm a little bit more optimistic shall we say a bit more hopeful a bit more let's beat around the bush a little bit and get to there slowly it'll, it'll be okay it'll be okay it'll be okay it'll be fine and andrew is 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 you know is, is the flip side of that coin which is straightforward get it done no nonsense straight talking and basically that's what he said to me he said well why don't you do it you keep saying someone should do it why don't you do it why not you? you've had at that time close to 12 years working at the bbc you've had a number of awards so we know that you can produce audio you have access to you know the processes in which to tell the story in the most professional way what's your problem just get it done and that was the beginning essentially of, of unedited it's so wild i'm first of all i'm glad that you did because of the work that we'll, we'll touch on later in the show i hope because I, I might take a turn you never know but also because at that time i i i was in the US, living in living in the US, but I had actually come, it was a few weeks before I was due to get married, actually. And I remember um getting in the car to for the for, for the tasting of food. We are having Ghanaian food. So we had to drive to East London. We lived in West, right? Um, West London for those uh non non-UK folks. And um it was there, there was a um there was a lockdown, wasn't there? There was a curfew. That's right. And so I'm driving there with my mum and my auntie, who were at the time women in their late 60s, very scared. And I have a younger cousin who drove, young man, and I'm, I'm saying this story specifically, um, driving there. And he was one of those, we were all tired. We were all tired. And I remember listening to the radio, um, LBC, which is a local station, um, and listening to the radio and hearing um, young black men calling. And some of them were like, I'm tired. And all of the hosts were like, I'm shocked, which speaks to your what you were understanding because you were in the industry at the time. Um, but I remember one person saying, I never would go out. I never would have gone out because my mom basically would have given me licks, would have would have hit me and would have. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, OK, fine. And I remember being mad, becoming quite angry and frustrated because the host seemed to relate to that. And it was just like, 
well, that's right. I don't understand why people are doing this because you've called black man and you said that you'd never do that because your parents would never let you do that. And I remember thinking they've missed the point of this. And I say that, so we're driving. This is all happening while we're driving across town. And then as we're driving back to West London after our lovely food tasting, um, my, I noticed that the car that I'm in and I'm with my cousin and my t- and my mum, my auntie, is being followed by the police. We right. just missed curfew. Curfew. We're being followed by the police, and my and I'm irate because I have been living in the US. I'm just like, what the hell are you doing? And also, I'm not a young black man, so I'm like, I'm ready to fight. And he's just like, narcissist, take it down. Um, and I was like, but they saw you. They saw us, but they saw you, but they saw us. I'm mad at that. And he just said, it's not worth it. And then in that moment, I was like, because this happens to him all of the time and he is tired. Then we had a car of three or four white boys, similar eight men, excuse me, men, similar age to him, pulling up next to us. And I was just like, I'm not in the mood for this today. They rolled the windows down and they were irate for him because they understood what was happening in that moment. And I thought that that was, um, it was one of those quite unique British moments in some ways where, you know, you're expecting someone of a different race to be like, whoa, and then it it changes on you because I think generationally, as young men, they were suspicious of the police, but for my, my brother, my cousin, my brother, he was just exhausted. So hearing what you're saying while realizing that at the same time, in the same kind of time frame, you were having that conversation and he was feeling that makes what you said all the more interesting and powerful because for decades, for generations before we were even born, black people were like, well, someone's got to do it. And then you did. You created unedited. So I think these, these kind of events that happen, they spark a reaction. Mm. Sometimes the reaction is activism. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the, the reaction is demonstration. And sometimes the, the, the reaction is, well, let's create something out of this. Yeah. And it might be poetry. It might be a book. It might be a production company. Mm. But it, it, always, it always fascinates me how out of great moments of tragedy, the human spirit is able to just develop and grow and survive and almost phoenix and come back with something yep. greater than what was meant to destroy it. Right, agreed. But in that phoenixing, <laughs> in that phoenixing, there is a process, right? So yes. you went from working with the BBC to starting your own production company. Did you just wake up the next day and say, I'm out? Yeah, let's, let's just be for real. That, <laughs> the pro- that process took six years <laughs> to really solidify. All right. So it went from. Well, what are we going to do to messing around with logos for years, to blogging, (laughs) to, you know, registering a company which was dormant for three years. Mm. And it takes a while. What stopped you? The the spark is lit. What stopped me? Security. (laughs) Is it going to make money? How am I going to pay my bills? My bills need to be paid today. Okay, come on. It it stops a lot of people. Um, and I'm well and truly open to, to, to um, share with people that actually having security and having your hand on security is not a bad thing. 
but you do need to have a plan. So while you're getting your bills paid, what are you actively planning? You know, making sure that your parachute is ready so that when you, you're about to jump out the window, you know everything is set. Mm. So in that time, I did training. I did courses. I networked. Um, I improved my skills on different software. You know, I was using Pro Tools like eight hours a day between that time, just making sure that I knew my craft as well as I possibly could. So to be clear, while you were working your day job, you mm-hmm. were working another job essentially by getting your stuff together. Yeah. Got it. So you didn't get any sleep? Very little sleep. All right. Okay. Okay. So just, just for anyone who's listening, there's going to be a period when you don't get no sleep. But there's also the issue of the confidence that like you talked about security. Yeah right? You've also got to trust in your vision. So in that yeah. moment where you're annoyed, yeah, I'm going to do it. But if no one has done it before, or few people have, how are you crafting and communicating that vision that people may not understand? Because you've established that what you want to do, people in your industry don't necessarily get. Mm. So how did you start also, communicating that? Mm. And also understanding that other people have taken this road before, some haven't been successful and their pain is what they're sharing with you, which mm-hmm. rises up a fear of, well, if they weren't able to do it, how will I be able to do it? Right. Okay. So you, other people's pain, obviously I'm not asking you to like spill all the beans, but what was, what were the, I am kind of, but what were the common <laughs> threads? <laughs> I'm not, but I am, you know, like what was the pain that they kept on hearing that could have put you off? Yeah. The, the common things I were here, I was hearing was, Things like there's a glass ceiling. There is typecasting in the kind of stories that you'll get to tell. So they'll come to you for Black History Month and no other time if if you're making content. Um, That resources are limited and you've got to really just look at the um, nonprofit grant funded route in order to create a sustainable business. And it just didn't make sense to me having, you know, my day job where I was being paid to deliver top quality production for someone that you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't give them number two position. It's the BBC for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. I'm being paid real money to work for the BBC. So my skills must be valuable. It must be to somebody. Mm-hmm. I wasn't on a, on a, on a, you know, on a diversity tick box scheme. I was working on the biggest news program on, on radio. Which was, which was so, what? Which was the Today program. Mm-hmm. So um, if I'm valuable enough, the skill set within me is valuable enough to be paid for by such a big organization for such a big output, such a big program, then it must be, there must be something in me that is valuable. Now, whether I can connect that to something or not, I've got to own that. Mm. That the, you know, the £2.50 or whatever it was that they're putting in my bank account. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Someone is writing that check every month because Mm -hmm. they know I'm worth something. And I had to own that. How long did it take for you to own that though? Because there are plenty of talented people out there who don't own that, right? I want to push back on that. You said it's not about um, whether it's not about you owning it. It's about whether other people have the same values as you. 
But there are people walking in this world who are very talented, who will tell themselves the lie that they don't really know what they're doing or what they're doing doesn't have a lot of value. So I think it's important for people to to come to terms with that process. I mean, not that they not so that they can switch it on all the time, but it is a journey to kind of say, I am talented at cutting audio. I'm really good at spotting a story. There are people who are veterans in the game who who still struggle with that imposter syndrome. And what I'm hearing from you is I don't have imposter syndrome. I need people to get on board and understand that I've got these skills. Yeah. A lot of a lot of personal work. A lot of, you know, outside of the audio industry, I, I do a lot of personal development stuff. I have a coach, I have a therapist. So I'm aware of who I am, my limitations and my my gifts, shall we say. I also have eight plaques on my wall which says you are Sony award winning. You're a Sony award winning producer now. But outside the UK, Sony awards are the radio Oscars in the UK. Right. Right. And over a 12 12 year period, I amassed eight of them. That's not bad. So. You know, know, when you wake up in the morning and you look at the wall, you're like, yeah, you must be about something. <laughs> I want to, but I want to stick in the, this confidence thing for a bit, right? Yeah. Because not everybody has um, eight Sony awards. Um, yeah. How? And you, you said you've done a lot of, you, you do a lot of work, right? You have a team where you're yeah. you're investing in yourself, and that's super important. And yeah. that's something that we globally, it's it's a generalization, but I think I'm fairly confident that this is the case. It is changing. We're not encouraged to necessarily invest in ourselves. We, we, we're encouraged to invest in what we put out and in our hard work and run, 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 run. But the idea of kind of like um, caring for ourselves and and doing all of those things, um, where did you, what's the value in that for you? When did you realize that that is a valuable thing for you to do? And that's something that you keep on doing so that you can sit mm. here and say to me today, I'm the bomb. People needed to get on board with me because I think that's key as a creator. Yeah. And you don't, I'm not saying it in an egotistical way. I mean, I'm saying it as I know the value I bring to the team. Yeah. And the, 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 I, I know I add to the team and what we do as a team will grow and will be great. But I know that I'm coming into player position and mm-hmm. I can do that position well. Mm-hmm. Um, this journey started when someone introduced me to something called the Landmark Forum. This is an, an advert but it's a personal uh, performance coaching uh, scheme, which got me on that journey. So then I did everything from Deepak Chopra sessions to Anthony Robbins sessions to, um, I, I even went to see Donald Trump speak once. As <gasps> part of, yeah. It's, I it's all right. Nobody. It, it, yeah. <laughs> I didn't get much from it anyway, <laughs> but it was, um, you know, I, I went on a journey and I, I, at the time, was doing everything, reading every book, Rich, rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, Seven Hype Habits of Highly Effective People. I, I went through this period while I was trying to work out what I was going to do with this business, as well as doing the physical training, just doing everything to grow myself. And I think I got to a point where I overdid it, to be honest. No. <laughs> you, you know when... Let me choose my words carefully, but I'm going to speak anyway. It's a safe space, right? Everyone agree? Okay, cool. Yes. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, when you get to a point where someone is so brand new on something, for instance, someone decides that being vegan is the best thing and they become such an evangelist about being vegan. Hold on, hold on. I love that you chose being vegan. 
But go ahead. I, I, I see what you were doing. Go ahead. Um, and they become such an evangelist about being a vegan that it upsets everyone around them. And I think I got to that point where I realized if this stuff is working for you, keep it to you. And when someone says, why is it what's working for you, then share it. Mm. One more time, please, for the people in the back. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let the work work for you and let people see the results of the work in you. Because if they don't see the results of the work in you, they, they just, they won't buy into it. Got it. In other words, shut up and do. Yes. Yeah. That's a nice way of saying it, but that's yeah. ultimately what you're saying. You're right. I got to a point where I needed to just shut up and do. Stop telling people about the books I'm reading and the events I'm going to and the courses I'm on and the weekend aways and they're going to sit in ice baths and, you know, ultimate warrior man sessions and just do. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it's for you. But, you know, thank you for that. And the other, the other part of this that is really important to emphasize that I'm, I'm thank you for the reminder is you have to invest in yourself. Yeah. I think we're often told not to invest in ourselves as creators or just as individuals. Constantly, you have to be curious about yourself and you have to invest in yourself and you have to be unafraid to learn and to try. Mm. Is that, that's what I'm hearing from you, correct? Yeah, yeah. You've got mm. to. You've got to bet on yourself. And as well as betting on yourself, you've got to invest in yourself. Hold on. I have the, to say this because I'm a fool. You mean bet on black? <laughs> Sorry. Just oh, gosh. There is, there is this trope where um, when you go to a lot of these, these empowerment sessions, the way they say, you know, when you're in a plane and they say when the masks fall down, you've got to put your own mask on first before you help others. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. Make sure you're breathing properly before you can help someone else breathe. Yeah, 100%. Thank you for listening to the Cypher podcast with me, Christabel, in CF Wadi. Sign up for our newsletter at our website. It's at www.thecypherpod.com. That's www.thecypherpod.com. How do you balance being creative with being a commercial business owner? Get to know my guest, Bernard, for his insight on running a successful creative business. So fast forward, um, you, you start unedited. Um, how um, auspicious or inauspicious was that when it happened? Hey. <laughs> we were excited. We were super excited. Mm. Um, I'd been with the BBC for a long time. So I had lots of contacts, I thought. I'd done some training in um, TV development. So I'd got some background into presenting ideas. I thought I'd done some pitching courses. So I thought I was ready to slay it. I thought I did a pitching course with Saatchi and Saatchi. Come on. Come on. I was they gave ready you all for the codes. It. They gave you the codes. Right. So myself and Andrew went to all the commissioners of all the big, you know, platforms in the UK with our slate of 23 ideas. We were ready. We had, you know, factual ideas. We had drama ideas. We had formats. We had nothing. We had nothing. No one picked anything up. Not even a, we like the idea, let's work on it. Nothing. Not one thing was picked up. Wow. 
And there was a wake-up call for us, which was, okay, what is happening here? And more importantly, what needs to happen next? Because no one's seeing our vision. Right. The industry is saying they want diverse stories. They want unique access to precincts that they haven't had before. They want new talent that no one's heard of before and willing to develop. We had all of those on, on the slate and not one of them was picked up. Hmm. So I could ask you, what did you do? This will come out in it. But essentially the question I, I want to really focus on is how, and you, you are going to get to this, I know, but how do you get people to see your vision, which is what you said earlier? Right, because yeah. you're still here. So, what yeah. did you do to get people to see your vision? We had to show them. I've had a conversation today, which has very reminded me exactly what that was. We had to show them how we build our houses. We had to show them how we make our songs. We had to show them how we plan our projects. We created a project with funding from a government scheme called the Audio Content Fund. Uh, we had to take that money and create a story in the way that we wanted to create the story because no one was giving us anything anyway. Mm. We had nothing else to do. <laughs> we had to put everything we had into making the story. We were helping, you know, influencers and creators make their podcast, but that wasn't going to sustain us. So we pitched for the audio content fund to create a story about um, black British footballers um, and it's that dilemma of being someone who identifies as British, being aware you have a heritage, and your, the pinnacle of your sport is to represent your country. Which However, your relationship with the country, even up to a few years ago, we, we heard that you might be wearing the, the three lions on your shirt, you might be in the England football team. But you're not from here. But you're not from here. And you're, I suspect you're referring to the World Cup final. Well, well there's and, the World and, Cup. And on, and on, and on, and on. Yeah, exactly. But I say the World so, Cup finals because when we got into the finals and then the penalties were missed, we yeah. everybody knew, everybody who had melanin knew, we all held our breath. And when the goal yeah. was missed, we all were like, and three, two, boom, there it is. And it was yeah. devastating. Yeah. Andrew's a sports fan and he got this story. He got this story that a lot of the players don't get spoken to about anything other than, so how did you feel about scoring that football? And what did you feel like when you heard the racist chanting in the stands? Mm. And that's what you hear on the sports programs. No one had really sat down with them and said, what's this process been like for you? So over six episodes, we went as far back as the earliest players who could have represented England and the politics that went behind it, which meant they didn't. And then right up to modern day and what the backlash was, even when you are third, fourth generation British and still there is a disconnect. Mm. Tell the, tell the listeners what, the name of the show before you continue, please. It's called Coming In From The Cold. Mm -hmm. And the way we did it was we did it in the way that we wanted to hear a production done. So great sound design, but we built it as a mixtape. Andrew and I come from the hip hop generation and we're both DJs. So we said, if I was going to put a mixtape out, the tunes have got to be banging. 
the sequences have got to be tight. The effects have got to be right. The, you know, the way we bring, the way we bring voices in has got to be like we're, we're mixing a track. You hear a voice and then you'll go back to another one and you hear the next voice and then go back to the other one. And so when you listen to coming in from the cold, you're listening to something and going, this is different. It's still a documentary, but there's something about the way it feels different. You know, there's a James Brown sample when someone talks about, you know, the three degrees, which is a, which is a three football players who played for the same team and they were called the three degrees. And you hear James Brown go, one, two, three. And then we go into the rest of the story. Those kind of things really connected because people hadn't heard it done that way before. So off the back of coming in from the cold, we got our launch into the industry because I think it was 17 awards and nominations wow. in the in the yeah in the award season after after that. Wow. Um, the most important one for us was the silver for factual. So in the Arias, which is the British Awards um, uh, organization, factual is often won by Radio Four. BBC Radio Four tends to win. Gold, silver, and bronze. It's it's a done deal. So Radio so Four. We, let's talk about what Radio Four is. It's more like the documentary. Yeah, the mainstream channels. speech mainstream. radio, documentary and news mm. um, features as well, um, and they tend to have very high class productions. Um, so you know we're expecting in that category, factual category, Radio Four number one, two, and three, and we just thought maybe they just put our name on the ballot because they needed to fill tick some diversity quota. And this is me being genuinely honest. We thought, we, we don't know why we're on there. Maybe Look they just that. needed to tick a box. And then when our name came up as Silver, <laughs> we're like, oh, oh, hold on a what sec. What do you mean? You know, no diversity quota will give you a Silver. No. They, had to, they had to hear something in that production that resonated with them. And what the citation said was, these are stories that they'd never heard before and told in a way that hadn't been told before. Wow. That's is, why we're here. Which is why you do what you do. But is, has it got... <laughs> okay. Has it got easier? <laughs> to <Hey>! tell, <laughs> exactly. I'm even, I can't keep a straight face as I'm asking You can't the even question. ask the question. <laughs> I know, but I'm going to try. Has I'll it got easier... <laughs> Exactly. Let me lie. Um, has it got easier telling th these stories or showing people how you make those stories? Um, I would say no. Because mm -hmm. even though it's easier in terms of our infrastructure, so when an idea gets picked up from for our team, we've got so many people who are so engaged and enrolled in what we do that w we are literally having to beat people off wanting to work with unedited because they get it. Mm. However, we are still from the industry getting, it's Black History Month coming up in a few months. Can you turn something around, which you may have given another production company a year to deliver? Mm. Or we're working with the talent. We think you'd be really great to work with them. And then we meet with the talent and like, oh, we know why they've paired you with us. <sighs> So how do you deal with that? Because I know part of your work is advocacy as well. And so mm. I'm sure this was unexpected, but you get to a certain point in your career as w in terms of mm. where you are now. And then you're paired with people because, oh, I know why we're working with you. How are you um, 
advocating and navigating on the inside now? You have to, you have to fight the battles. Um, it's, it's, I, I don't want to use the word education because that seems so worthy, mm-hmm. but it is a diplomatic, it is a diplomatic effort in terms of enrolling people on the vision that you have. You know, there are everything from microaggressions with talent that you work with, um, working with platforms and, and networks and commissioners and, you know, things like making sure we have the, the, a decent budget to work on a project. Those kind of things keep coming up. And being involved in the industry, um, I'm in a couple of advocacy groups. I'm part of a thing called Audio UK, which represents all the independent audio producers in the UK. Being part of those groups mean that I can have those top-level conversations about top-level audio priorities, which means when it comes to my own company, I can say, I know that you guys are paying X 150000 And it's a similar story with a similar-sized team and similar deliverables. So why would you be paying us half of that? Let's, let's really dig into that. Let's ask the question. Wow. So you're advocating with your peers, but you're also yeah. mentoring as well, because in the UK, um, there, there are many audio pro- uh, producers. I mean, you have mentioned the fact that you will talk about your love of music in a minute because you, you just um, hit on that because I'm curious about how you got into it in the first place. I suspect it had something to do with music, but we'll move on from that in a minute. Um, but there are so many um, audio producers in the UK, I suspect who are trying to break through. You refer to the, cl- the glass ceiling. Everyone feels that. It's hard to break into the BBC because it's, it's a particular kind of institution. What does your mentorship look like for um, new producers or younger producers coming up? For me, it's, it's mainly about vision setting and giving them reality, mm-hmm. just giving them the sense of what reality looks like in the industry. Um, and that's not discouraging them. That's really saying, you know, that is a box, that is a blue pillar, and you've got to go around the box and the blue pillar. Mm. That's, that's fact. But it's important to get the vision setting right because without having a clear vision of what you are going for and what you want to achieve, you can lose your way very quickly, get disheartened very quickly. Mm. And especially at this time where, you know, podcasting as an industry is going through some very interesting times, um, you know, like it went buck wild during the, the, the pandemic. I, w- I stumbled because I wanted to say panorama. I just, that's what I call it now. Um, and it's contracting somewhat, you know, like those sexy big deals that are flying around and not necessarily flying around, but there are still people who want to create audio independently um, and uh, people who are listening to this will be some of those people too. What would you advise them um, in terms of this next step in uh, January 2023 or early 2023? I would always say make it. Mm-hmm. As much of it as you can make. If all you can get is one interview, get that interview. If you, all you can do is create a playlist, one one things I do is whenever I'm working on anything, I create a playlist because it sets the mood for me. It's almost like a vision board. So, you know, as much as you can, you can bring it into reality, do it. Because it's better to have something than just an idea in your head. And audio is, 
so democratic and so easy to get into, so easy to turn something around, that even if it's not the best quality, the fact that you are engaging with it will grow. For instance, we're working on a project. Um, I'm trying not to give too much away, but we're working on a project <laughs> where when we were working on, on paper, we planned everything. Um, and then we decided we we're going to go out and do interviews. And if we hadn't gone out to do interviews, we wouldn't have seen a glaring hole in the story, which was, oh, yeah, there is a whole part of the story that we haven't followed because we're following this part of the story. And if we hadn't done it, if we just sat there and looked at it on paper and, and just done the deck, we wouldn't have got that insight of, oh, yeah, there's another side of the story that isn't being told. Mm. So get out into the world. Don't forget. Get, to get out, out into, into the, the world. world. Make it real. Um, so basically, you don't, you're saying that you, you need your phone, but everyone keeps telling me I don't, I need a microphone and my phone ain't it. Yeah, you know Including what? you, I, I, B. I do, I do this thing. I do this exercise when we train. And I play them some audio that was recorded with a 50 pound mic. And then I play them some audio, which is recorded with a 5,000 pound mic. Sometimes if I'm in, in space with them, I will give them the microphones and tell them, tell me which one is the 50 pound mic and which one's the 5,000 pound mic. Most people can't tell the difference. Your engineers will, but most people can't tell the difference. And the most expensive piece of recording equipment that you need to consider is the space in which you record. If you're in a completely soundproof room, then your 5,000 pound mic and your 50 pound mic won't sound that different. Mm. If you're out and about like I am, <laughs> then you need to know what you're doing. You need to make sure your mic capture is the right shape. You need to make sure that, you know, you've got the right level. You've got to make sure that, you know, you're using the right bit rate so that if you want to process anything that's all later on that's all later down the line let the engineers worry about that but you've got a phone capture your ideas on the phone i absolutely love that and capture your ideas on the phone in your car if your name is bernada champong but um we'll move on from that so <laughs> i want to wrap this up because i you know it's, I, I don't want to wrap it up i'm enjoying this conversation but i have to wrap this up but I, I promised that I'd get back to this question about how you started. We did talk about how you started with unedited. You have um, you have indicated that you love music. I'm just assuming that. Well, I know that for a fact, but just in terms of the playlist that you build, what's the connection between getting into audio and and music, if there is one? There is. My dad. Oh. My dad had such a beautifully eclectic um, record collection. And there were two things that really sparked me into this fascination with sound. He had these live albums. I remember there was a Jimi Hendrix one. There was a Watt Stacks, 1972, was a, a, a concert that happened out in Watts. Um, and there was the um, Sammy Davis Jr. live album. And I was listening to speakers in my room and I was transported to this concert, which happened time and miles away. And there was something about that experience that really got me. Just being in your house, but being able to connect with the, you know, the reverb and the, the feedback and the crowd noises and, you know, just the different sonic feel of a live drum compared to one in a studio. 
there was something about it, just listening to music in a different context, which really fascinated me. So I remember when I finally found the Wattstacks album, because he left all his records in Ghana and who knows where they are now. Oh, um, when I found the Wattstacks album in a secondhand record shop, I was over the moon because it was almost vindication of what this was. He also had a very weird seven inch record. Now, try and find these if you can. Look for Shaft versus Superman on YouTube. These cut and paste records where I think it was a radio DJ would basically create a, an interview with Shaft and Superman, but he would use clips of songs to kind of be, narrate the answers. So something like, gosh, um, let me see if I can remember one of them. There's loads of these things. Um, something like, you know, um, so you were seen going to the hotel last night. Who were you with? Me and Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones. So it's that kind of stuff. And for me, I was recognizing clips of songs that I knew from elsewhere being wow. put in a different context. And I was like, ooh, so you can lift that and add it to that and make something completely different. And tell a story. And tell a story. That started my fascination with DJing and putting stuff together. And one of the things that I got known for early on is the skits. Okay. The mixtapes were great, but the skits in the middle were, I spent more time on the skits than I did on doing the actual mixes. How old were you with Wattstacks when you, when you, when oh, you heard, when you were transported? So I, I would have been, it was in Ghana, so I would have been three. You were a baby, but you remember I was a that. Baby. So it's one of your first memories. Yeah. It, it literally felt like I was somewhere else. I wasn't in my living room. Wow. So from Ghana and what's that to your car in London and unedited edited. <laughs> Funny, shows. right? It's pretty hilarious to me. Um, I would wrap it up there because I thought that would have been quite a nice bow. But I do actually want to ask you one last question. I sure. speaking of your 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 playlists, you worked on something called the Black Curriculum Presents the Sounds of Black Britain, which uh -huh. I love because it's from my slash our era and mm -hmm. how did that project come together i'm really i would love to learn more about that so that project is actually the perfect end to your story because it is an example of how advocacy works mm -hmm. that project was something that was pitched three years earlier and took a while to get down the line because it needed to be right it needed to be authentic so making sure that the ownership of the editorial was with the right people, making sure that the guests that we wanted were right, but also that the host that we wanted wasn't just an influencer, wasn't just someone who had a bit of shine on their face, but someone who could really and truly contribute to the conversations. And if we had to wait, we had to wait because we needed it to be right. Making sure that we could make the most of the platform because when we knew that Spotify had visuals as part of their podcast, we really wanted to take, I think it took, we took another month just to plan what we wanted our visuals to look like. So we experimented with pieces to camera and VTs and small packages to insert into this because we thought 
if we're going to have the opportunity to use video, let's really use video. Let's not just put a couple of cameras on our guest and call it a day. So everything from graphics to, to typefaces to grading to making you know all the behind the scenes footage, the B-roll footage that forms part of the texture of the narrative, that's everything that we wanted to do with it. And that's and so, about being authentic. Right, right. And so to be clear, this was a, a, a partnership with Spotify. You mentioned that too. Is that correct? So this is a partnership with Spotify and the Black Curriculum. Right. Spotify had a, create a relationship with the Black Curriculum in terms of getting something done, but nothing quite felt right. When we came to the table, this was one of a couple of ideas that had been pitched. Um, we felt this was the one, this was the way to go. And what we didn't want to do was bring Stormzy in to talk about Stormzy. We wanted to bring people in who would talk about the scene. You had to be a practitioner, yes, but you have to talk about your love of the scene and the other people in there. We want you to give people their flowers. We want this to be the moment where if you love um, Carnival, you are listening to other people who love Carnival, have participated in Carnival, and advocate for Carnival. If you love Afrobeats, you want to speak to people who are in it, but not just talking about themselves and promoting their new album. You want people who are like, I ride for Afrobeats. I ride for Ama Piano. And that's what the casting was. So we've got, you know, we, we match up Frisco, who is a, a grime kind of legend with General Levy, who talks about the jungle. And then they have an interesting conversation about how those two scenes merged and where they didn't merge. You have Nobile and J5 talking about Afrobeats, one from West Africa, one from South Africa. And she's representing Ama Piano and, and that whole movement. And J5 talking about, well, yeah, I actually wanted to do grime, but I kept on using these African sounds and people kind of went, okay, that's a thing. For me, the authenticity, which is the thing that you started talking about, comes from getting people who are authentic about their passion for what they do. And once, once you capture that, everything else will take care of itself. Lovely way to end. And also what a way to um, um, kind of like look at Black British culture, which is often so often so often submerged and and just ignored in that way, and just telling it in through the voices and the people who've made it. Lovely way to end. Thank you so much, B, for your time and the conversation. You are most welcome. Anytime you need me, I'm right here. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Bernard Piachampong. He is the founder and co-director at the podcast and radio production company, Unedited. You can listen to The Cypher wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Follow Bernard Achampong on Instagram and Twitter at BP Achampong. That's B-P-A-T-H-A-M-P-O-N-G. And don't forget to subscribe to The Cypher podcast and tell all your friends to do the same. Our website is thecipherpod.com. That's the C-I-P-H-E-R-P-O-D.com. Our production team includes Cerise Small, Larissa Witcher, Ty Hughes, and Eugene Kidd. The Cypher is a Maya Lens Media production.